listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. This morning as we, uh, as we look at God's Word together, uh, we're, we're going to be looking at uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and it's a pretty short passage. It's actually only four words, and you might think, well, he should be able to cover that in four minutes. And uh, that, that's probably, you know, there's some truth to that. Well, in, in the Hebrew, it's actually only two words. And you might think that, well, maybe he can cover it in two minutes. But I'm, I'm here to disappoint you this morning. It will go a lot longer than two minutes. There's a lot to say in, uh, about these few words that uh, Moses, God gives to us through his prophet Moses. Uh, it's one of those commandments that, as Meldon alluded to earlier, on the surface looks and seems pretty simple. It's the one commandment that probably most of us here can say with some confidence, well, at least I haven't broken that commandment. But as, uh, as we'll discover, um, it's, it's not all that it seems on the surface. So this morning, rather than just read the passage that we're going to be looking at, I'm going to read another passage from Matthew chapter 5. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, and we'll read Jesus' words, Jesus' reflection on this commandment. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, we read... Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said of old, and he's referring back to the Ten Commandments that God has given, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, that's the Sanhedrin, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then Come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. And truly I I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we come to you uh, in need again. We need fresh manna. We, we, uh, we can't live on what we heard last week, Father. We need you to refresh us. We need you to visit us again with your word, Father. We need a light to guide our feet to know how to walk. And Father, you bring us this morning to these, uh, these, these four short words. You shall not murder. You shall not kill. And Father, we pray. I just want to ask that you would open our eyes. Give us hearts that will hear and receive and be soft, Father, to your spirit as he speaks, as he convicts, as he touches our lives. 
Uh, Father, just give us insight and discernment into our own hearts. Father, change us, we pray. For those here who are here this morning, Father, who don't know you, God, I pray that your spirit would fall on them, that you would give them ears to hear, that finally, Father, you might lift the scales from their eyes and cause them to see, to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and rejoice at it. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage, this short passage of Scripture, really through a, through a lens, a particular lens. We're going to look at this passage of Scripture and what creation says about it. And then um, we're going to move from creation to the fall, and we're going to look at what the fall says about this passage. And then we're going to move on from the fall, and we're going to look at what the cross or redemption tells us about this command. And then finally, we're going to look at what, 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 where we're going. We're, new, we're a new creation in Christ. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're a new creation. We have a new relationship to the law. And that has a lot to say about how we live our lives. So that's sort of the trajectory of what we're going uh, for this morning. Uh, to begin with, I just want to start at the place that the Bible starts, at creation. What does, what, does, what does the Bible say about man? How do we know that murder is wrong? We, like, we all know it. I think every single human being, every government, every institution knows that murder is wrong. But do we know why murder is wrong? And the Bible gives us several reasons. The first reason that the Bible gives us is that man is intrinsically or inherently valuable. The Bible tells us, tells us that, is, that it is because man is valuable to God, because he has been made in the image of God, that is why murder is wrong. Man is, man is created. God made him in his image. That makes him inherently valuable, and that's what makes murder wrong. But murder also violates three principles that we see in creation. The first principle that it violates is the command that God gives to all of mankind at the very beginning to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God created the world to operate in a certain way. And he commanded people to go out into the world to get married and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was the way that God was going to spread his image all over the face of the earth. And so and this is an important reason for God not allowing man to create an image of him. God hasn't had another plan already. His plan in order to spread his face over the entire globe, over the entire planet, was for you and I, for his, his people and their offspring to go out and to procreate, to make children. And in so doing, those children would be a display of God's image on the, all over the face of the earth. Murdering stops that. Murdering is a direct affront to that. Murdering says, 
I, we, we will not submit to that. We're going we're gonna to do as we please, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna cut somebody off. One of your created beings, we're going to cut them off and prevent them from doing that, from spreading your face over the earth. The second thing that murder violates is that it steals a person's right, God-given right, to live out their life. So God is the one that grants life, and only God has the authority to take life. So the, the, uh, the U.S. Constitution recognizes this, but it goes way back beyond the U.S. Constitution. But they called this, or they, they gave this a name. They said, every human being has certain unalienable rights, which just simply means that because you're a human being, you have certain rights. And one of your rights is the right to live. God created you. God put breath in you, and you have that right to live. Murder takes that right, that inherent, that intrinsic, that unalienable human right away from you. And and thirdly, Murder violates the principle of, or, or it, is, it is a desecration of God's image. Man was not only the pinnacle, the peak of God's creation, man was God's representative on earth. Man was meant to represent God on earth. And so murder is, an, is a desecration of that image. That's kind of a big word, but a couple of years ago, I hope this illustration helps. A couple of years ago, maybe some of you saw this video. There was a, a little kid who was walking across um, or in front of this painting. It was a $1.5 million painting. And then you, you see this little kid. He's got, a, he's got a, a drink, you know, some kind of soft drink in his hand, and he slips. And he puts his hand right through this $1.5 million <laughs> painting. And uh, it's all on video, and you're, you, know, you can watch it, and, and they show the, the hole you know, in it. Well, they repaired the hole, but that's, that's, a, that's desecration. Now, now, desecration generally has more intent behind it, but desecration is simply the destruction of something that is sacred. And that is what one man does to another when you murder. You desecrate Something that is sacred. Man, God has created man in his image. And as such, man is sacred. Man's life is sacred. And murdering is a destruction of something that God has said is holy, is good. So, man is intrinsically valuable because he is an image bearer. That's what creation says. That's why murder is wrong. That's why it is evil to, to murder a man, to violate, to desecrate God's image bearer, what God has put on the earth to represent him. So, so that's what creation tells us about murder, about the, the evilness of murder, the why murder is wrong. But what, is, what does the sixth commandment confront in our human nature? So Moses has given us, God has given us this commandment through the prophet Moses. And, it, and it's directly confronting something in us. 
And this is, this is the fall. This is where we start looking at how man has fallen and what the effects of the, of the fall are on us. And, and what we see is that sin has bent us. It has made us into, and, and, and we're looking at the sixth commandment here, it's made us into violent, self-serving men and women who have an attitude of woe to that person who stands in my way in the way of what I want to achieve or what I want to possess. That's, that's how this commandment confronts our sin. Sin has bent us and we, we want what we want and we will do whatever we, we need to in order to get what we want. We find that the, the definition, the, the, the dictionary gives us a definition of murder as the unlawful, premeditated killing of another person. And we find that the scriptures identify and prohibit murder. In Genesis chapter 9, just after Moses or Noah has left the ark, God says to him, as, as for, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the life or the blood of a man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his image. The grounds for, this is, this is the under or the support, the argument for capital punishment and I, I'm not going to go there today, not because I don't want to talk about it, but because I want to go in a different direction. But there is a cost. God values man. He has said, man, I, man is, is my image bearer. And if anybody sheds a man's blood, I will require his blood in exchange. So the fall has bent us. It has bent us in a way that leads us towards violence. And we're going we're gonna to see how this is filled out more fully here. Most of us don't really identify with murder. It's one of those extreme criminal offenses perpetrated by the most despicable character, characters who lurk on the fringes of society. Characters so enslaved and perverted by greed, power, or lust that we, we honestly almost think they're, they're inhuman. They, we don't know them. We don't know people like them. And because murder is way out there, you think that murdering is something obvious. That it would be easy to keep this command. That even before the giving of the Ten Commandments, men and women would know that it was wrong. And indeed, they do know that it's wrong. But we think that it's easy to keep it. And, and, and we think that we may wonder, you may wonder or find yourselves wondering, why do we really even need a commandment for this? It's so obvious and it's really so easy to do. All I have to do is not, you know shoot somebody or put a knife in somebody. I mean, like, that's pretty easy to do. I don't, I got to go long ways out of my comfort zone in order to, to break this commandment. Why do I even really need it? I mean, how many people here have committed murder? Or for that matter, how many people do you know personally who have committed murder? I mean, murder is, it really is way out there. 
Think of all the examples that the scriptures give us of people who commit murder. So, uh, the, the, the uh, creation account happens in what chapter? Genesis 1. Genesis 2, we have the account of Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 3, anybody know what Genesis 3 about, is about? No, it's not about Mary and Joseph. It's about, Genesis 3 is where, where Adam and Eve sin. And God expels them from the garden. And it, does anybody know what, what happens in Genesis 4? The very next chapter, Cain kills his brother Abel. The very, really, the, it's not the first sin that we see, but it, it, it appears like right away, murder is, is in the biblical narrative almost immediately. But it's not just... It's not just Cain who was an unbeliever and, and who rose, who wouldn't take God's counsel and, and repent of his, of his anger. Uh, let me just read what, uh, I think I've got it here. I'll, if not, I will address it a little later. I'll, I'll address it a little later. It, it, but it's not just Cain. It's not just Cain who's an unbeliever, and so we can chalk that up as, uh, you know, as just what you know, extreme unbelievers do. Even Moses, the, the man who is, who's given us, who's, who's, who's the vehicle that God is giving us these Ten Commandments, this man, this very man commits murder. We read in Exodus chapter 11, um, Exodus chapter 3, sorry, 2, verses 11 through 14, that Moses one day was out um, when he'd grown up. He, he goes out to his people and he looks on their burdens and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And he looked this way and then he looks that way. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, Behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptians? So the, the, the very man that's giving us the Ten Commandments, the law, he's a murderer. And, it, and it's not just Moses. God says of, of King David that he was a man after his own heart, and yet, in a wickedly devised scheme, David planned and murdered one of his own soldiers, his, one of his own friends. There's a list in, uh, in, in first, or Second Kings and, and also in Second Chronicles. There's a list of 30 mighty men. David's 30 mighty men. And Uriah is listed in that list. He was one of David's friends. And David planned and schemed his own murder so that he could possess Uriah's wife. And this is a man that God said or God promised that he would establish his throne forever. This man, the king of Israel, the one, the man whom God says he is a man after my own heart. This man he is a murderer. And it's not just David. 
Uh, we go to the New Testament, probably the most influential man in the New Testament. The, you could argue this is, this is potentially the most influential man apart from Jesus Christ in all of world history. The Apostle Paul, the man that God used to save the Gentiles and change the entire course of human history. This man, too, was a murderer. Uh, Luke tells us that after they had finished stoning Stephen, one of the early deacons in the, in the church, they laid their cloaks at Saul or the Apostle Paul's feet. And then Saul went out and he, and he pursued Christians, throwing them in prison and, uh, and giving uh, support, lending support to, to their death. So the, the Ten Commandments can seem a little over the top, especially the command not to murder. We think that, you know, it's, so I've given you all those examples, but it, it still really doesn't bring it home. These are still people that are far off. You, you might be amazed with me about the, the role or the place that, that God has given to murderers in, his, in the history of his people. That, that's pretty remarkable, but it still feels like it's kind of far off, like it doesn't really hit home. Um, but immediately, you know, we find that the first thing that is on the minds of men after being kicked out of Eden several thousand years before this commandment that Moses has given us, the, one of the, the very first things on, on, the, on the minds of men is the thought of murder. It, it does not take very long. Sin is so powerful. Sin is so blinding. Sin is so self-centered that it, that it even perverts love to hatred. And we see that, I, I won't, uh, we won't look at it, but we see that in the, in the life of David and his children. Ammon, it says in the scriptures that Ammon loved or hated so he loved Tamar, his half-sister. He rapes her. And then it says afterwards that he hated her with a greater hatred than he loved her. Sin so twists and distorts and perverts that it can turn love into hatred. That's, that's the fall. So what does Jesus say about murder? We read that passage in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. And what we really see is Jesus dials back the whole conversation. It's like Jesus is reading the script that God had between Cain and Abel. Let me, I'll read it to you here. God says, or God asks Cain this. He says, to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? Because he's just offered a sacrifice that God doesn't accept. A sacrifice, uh, a vegetable sacrifice or a, a plant-based sacrifice and not a blood sacrifice which God requires. And, and he warns Cain, he says, if you do well, meaning if you repent, if you, if you offer to me a blood sacrifice, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. But the thing that God, uh, that God identifies here is, is Cain's anger. Why are you angry, Cain? That's the root of the murder, is the anger. And Jesus, he picks up on this. In, in Matthew chapter 5, 21 to 22, Jesus says, You have heard of old, it said of old, you shall not mur murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, Jesus is just repeating what God has said to Cain back in Genesis chapter 4. So none of this is new, right? It, it, it's, it's all the same root is there right from Genesis chapter 3. Anger is at the root of murder. When Jesus says these words, he's not being smart. He's not being self-righteous. He's not even being overly dramatic like a preacher who tells a fish story to make his point. No, he's saying it because it's true. Because there are two dangers. The first danger is at the, root of, is at the root of murder. And if you give anger a foothold, if you allow anger to take root in your life, that path ends at murder. It starts here. It starts at something seemingly innocuous, unimportant. Right? Not, not very serious, not a big deal, but it ends at murder. That's, that's, the, that's the end. It always goes there. The second danger is that God judges all sin along the path in the same way. From the initial, and we see this in Jesus's, in Jesus's, in what Jesus says. If you say, if you, if you call your brother a fool, you're, you're in danger of the fires of hell. From the initial angry response that we have to the stewing, to the brooding, to the resenting, the festering, the lashing out, until it finally culminates in murder, God judges all of that. All of that, even if it never gets past that initial angry response, all of it God judges as sin and condemns the sinner to hell. That's what Jesus says about anger. And so what does the rest of the New Testament say about murder? And there's several passages that we could turn to. But James chapter 4 verses 1 through 12 most clearly explains what's going on behind the scenes. And you can turn in James 1, uh, or turn, sorry, to James chapter 4. We'll read the first, I'll read the first three verses. Or you can just write it down, look it up later. But James asks this question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you... <laughs> and James dials things up a bit here. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask... 
You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You see what James is getting at here? There's a war going on inside of you that is at the root of your anger. You want something. Maybe that something is respect. Maybe, maybe it's that you don't feel appreciated at home or at work. Maybe it's a clean house or, or a quiet house. Maybe you want your parents or your little brother to get out of your face. Maybe it's that big bossy sister. It's, it's every single one of those little things. that causes your temperature to rise and your blood to boil, that grrr, that, you know, maybe it's silent, but you just feel it erupting from your lips, that frustration. It happens every day. It happens 30 times. Maybe it happens 300 times a day. And we all know the beast, and we can barely contain the beast. So what is, what is this command, thou shalt not kill? What does it confront in our human nature? The answer, we're all murderers, every single one of us. We're all violent and bent on our own selfish ambition. And as I said before, woe be to the man or woman who stands in the way of what we want to achieve or possess. But closer to our experience we are men who are at war. We are at war externally. We're at, we're at war with other nations. We're at war with people on Facebook. We're at war with our neighbors. We're at war with our children. We're at war with our spouses. But we're also at war internally. We know the good that we ought to do, and we don't do it. And that resulting feeling that we get is what the Bible calls searing the conscience. We think thoughts and we speak words that tear down and destroy and we learn how, we learn how to steel ourselves against the onslaught of guilt and shame and fear by developing techniques like blame shifting like justifying our actions, like explaining away our guilt, like denying morality. But at the end of the day, our conscience still condemns us. Well, that really sounds bad, right? I painted a terrible picture. You're all feeling like, whoa, this guy, he is, this is a low point. Well, it, it is a low point. I, I'm, I'm trying to show us that we started, it started out good. God created man in his image. He put them in this perfect place. He gave them one commandment. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and if they'd obeyed that commandment, everything would have been good for all of eternity. And that's not what happened. That's not how the story goes. And man falls. And the result is what we experience when we, every day, when we walk out, when we wake up from our beds, the, the moment we put our foot on the floor. The, the reality is that we are people of violence. 
are, we walk in the way of violence. And, and it, it might not be murder specifically, but it's the 4,000 things that precede murder. That is our, that's, that's our daily experience. So what's the solution to man's violent nature? The answer, we need a king. We need somebody who brings peace. We're people of violence and we need somebody to bring peace. We need redemption. We need to be redeemed. We, redeemed means to be set free, to be bought back. And specifically to be bought out of slavery. We need to be redeemed from our slavery to sin. Now, before we look at this king who brings peace, we must understand that man's sin and God's mercy creates a problem. How, how, how can we know a merciful God? How can we know a gracious God? Well, it's only against the backdrop of sin. It's like a diamond, you know, this beautiful, gorgeous diamond the, the way that we see it most clearly is against a backdrop of black velvet that brings out all the points and the sparkles and the facets, right? Sin is like that. We see God's grace and mercy. It shines like that diamond against the backdrop of sin. We see God's grace and mercy only against this backdrop of sin. If there were no sin... And no need for justice, then God would not have to be gracious and merciful. If Adam and Eve and the human race had remained unstained by sin, there would be no opportunity to witness God's mercy towards sinners. It's not until after the fall, in real time, not until men and women fell, that we see God's grace and mercy. You see, sin reveals Mercy. I'll say that again. Sin reveals mercy. You can't see or experience mercy and grace until there's a need for it. Sin affords the opportunity for God's mercy. As Romans says, Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Putting God's grace and mercy on display. And this is important because knowing and experiencing God's goodness through mercy and grace reveals another aspect of God's character. And it makes his goodness appear even more good and beautiful. So, so God was good when he created everything. God calls what he created good. And yet, sin, God's grace against the backdrop of sin, allows us to see how God as good in a new way and even more beautiful. So if sin reveals God's mercy, it also anticipates a Savior who would rescue his people from their sin. So God sends his Son the future king, to endure violence at the hands of vi the violent men and women that he would save. Let me say 
that again, the king endured violence at the hands of the very people that he would save. And we sort of take this statement for granted that Jesus died for sinners. It just rolls off our tongue. We don't even think about it. But I want, you to, I want to ask four questions today that will help us reflect on the violence that he suffered at the hands of the very people that he would save. Now, I could go on and talk pretty extensively about the violent death that Jesus suffered, and truly his death was violent, but Jesus' violent death uh, was, was not actually that remarkable. Thousands, thousands of people Tens of thousands of people died by crucifixion during the time of the Roman Empire. So Jesus' death, his violent death, was not actually that remarkable. No, what is remarkable is the way that Jesus suffered at the hands of the people that he would save. First, let's consider who it is that Jesus suffers or endures this violence from who so acts chapter 2 36 through 38 luke records the apostle peter's sermon where he says let all the house of israel know oh boy i am missing the rest of my sermon <laughs> There is not, nothing else there. I must have run out of paper. All right, well, I'm on my own here. Uh, I, I'm not sure that I can get through all of these points, but that's okay. Um, let, let's consider who Jesus suffered uh, the violence from. Luke chapter 2, 36 through 38. Now I actually have to read my Bible and not just rely on the, uh, it being written down here. So Jesus, or uh, Peter, is preaching here. And he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and Peter and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus endures violence from the very people The who here is the very people that he would save. These people, not more than two months prior, were part of nailing Jesus Christ to a cross. And now Peter is confronting that. Peter is calling them to repent. Peter directly addresses the fact that they crucified their Lord and Savior. So the the who... Boy, oh boy, this, this is tough here. <laughs> the, uh, the who here is, it's the people who nailed him to the cross. And it's not just the people who nailed him to the cross. It's not just the people in Peter's day. It's you and I. It was, 
Jesus went to the cross because of our sins, the sins of his people. He recognized that his people needed a savior. That his people were going to die in their sins. They were violent. They hated God. And if God didn't step in and do something, their their end was certain. They, They would die in their sins and they would deserve it. And so Jesus steps in and rescues them. He steps in and he endures their their persecution. He endures the violent death for them. And, (laughs) you know, I'm going to skip to the end here. Um, There's a couple things that I want to say. Um, So we have a Savior now who willingly endured persecution. violence to rescue his people from their sin. We, we don't deserve that, right? We, we daily practice uh, violence in our thoughts, in our actions, right? In the little things that we think, the things that we say, the unkind words, the way that we pout, the way that we sulk. Uh, we, we can do it boldly, and, and Jesus endured everything for us on, on our behalf. He didn't deserve any of it. He stood there silently, not because he couldn't defend himself, but because we were supposed to be standing there in his place. We were the ones who deserved to have the accusations brought against us. And, you know, when we're in that situation, when somebody brings a charge to us, we might be guilty, but inwardly, we want to defend ourselves. We want to minimize the sin, right? We want to justify our actions. Maybe, maybe we don't say it, but we think it. And the truth of the matter is, we're, we're guilty. The charges stick. And so Jesus stands there in our place, silent, like a lamb led to the slaughter. And he does it because if he didn't do it, you would have to do it. You would have to stand before a holy and righteous God and your mouth would be shut. You would have nothing to say. And God would judge you for your sins. And, and justly condemn you to hell. And that's why Jesus stood there silently for you. He took everything for you. All the charges that were true, that God leveled against you, Jesus stood there and took them all. He just stood there silently. Yes, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take all of Sheon's guilt. I'll, I'll, I'll bear all of that. Yes, I'll take all of Keith's guilt. I'll, I'll bear all of that. I, I didn't do it, but if, if, I, if, I, if I stand here and take it and, and stand in his place, then he doesn't have to suffer. And, and that's what our Savior did. He stood in our place silently, taking our guilt, bearing our sin and shame on the cross so that you wouldn't have to. 
And in the process, he redeemed us. He bought you out of slavery and he set you free from the power and the dominion of sin. You are no longer, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are no longer under the power and dominion of sin. That's what redemption means. Bought back. You have a new owner. God owns you. Jesus Christ owns you. You are now slaves, according to the book of Romans, you are slaves to righteousness. You have been set free from the domain of darkness. And not only have you been redeemed, right? That's, that's glorious. That should cause us to break forth in worship. As we see God's mercy and grace on display at the cross, we, we should sing and rejoice at what God has done. And that looks forward. God's redemption looks forward. There is, there is hope for, for us in the future. There is a new creation. God has something better in store. And, and this, this all starts with a new heart. You're a new creation in Christ. When Jesus Christ buys you back, when he hung on that cross for your sin and paid the penalty for your sin, a couple of things happened. Well, first, let's, let's get back into real space time here. You have got to come to a place where you see that as good, where you see that as your only hope. It's your only lifeline. It's the only way that you can crawl out from underneath the weight of your sin, specifically your violence, the murder in your hearts. It's the only way. But when you turn to Christ, you become a new creation. You get a new heart, right? You start thinking differently. The... Um, the Ten Commandments, they stand as this uh, monolith, right? This, this weight against us. I mean, Paul says that, the, that God gave us the law in order to show us that we were sinners. And so this law stands as this massive mountain just cr crushing us. And Jesus Christ has removed the weight of that sin. He's removed the crushing nature of the law. But now he's done something different. The, the, the law or the prophets looked forward to a day. They prophesied that God would in the future write his law on people's hearts. And, and they would no longer teach one another because everyone would know God. They would know his commandments. And that day was fulfilled when Jesus Christ went to the cross. And everyone who puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that happens. The law gets written on their hearts. They have a new mind. They, they think differently. They see everything differently. Formerly, God's commands were burdensome. We hated them. We rebelled against them. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And when, when the 
kindness and love of God stepped in when it, when it broke through our blindness, when it changed us, when it, when it regenerated us, gave us new hearts, made us alive to him, everything changes. And many of you know what that is like. Yes, we have, we're still in a war. We still battle. But, but the, the nature of the war has changed. We're now, we're no longer on the losing side. We're on the winning side. In fact, the battle has already been won. And we're fighting skirmishes right now. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and principalities and powers and spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. We, we, we are in a battle. The battle's been won. But, but we're still fighting we're still fighting skirmishes, but we're doing it with new minds and new hearts, hearts that love God and love Jesus Christ. So just to close it, um, with, with a couple of illustrations, in, um, in Luke chapter, in the, in the gospel of Luke, we see three uh, striking examples of how how the gospel, particularly how seeing God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ transforms people. You cannot come face to face with Jesus and not be changed. Uh, Luke chapter 5 tells a story or records a, uh, uh, an occurrence where Jesus is teaching the people on the shores of, of Galilee and in order to be able to be heard, he asks Peter to row him out in a boat. And he's preaching, he's preaching from the water to this amphitheater of people. And after it's all done, uh, I assume that Peter's dropped Jesus off. And Jesus says to Peter, go back out and throw your nets over the other side. And, you know, they're, they're fishermen. Jesus is not a fisherman Peter says, you know, I, I wouldn't do this, but because it's you, Lord, I know you, I love you, I, I'm going to obey. They throw the net over on the other side, and they pull in this, this unbelievable catch of fish. And Peter's response is, is striking. Uh, you know, I, I would think, here, you know, he'd be overwhelmed. He's this, he'd say, this is cool, this is amazing, I've never seen anything like this, I've been doing this all my life, you know. I, the power of Jesus is amazing, but that's not what he says. Jesus, or Peter, jumps out of the boat, swims to the shore, falls on his face, repents, and tells Jesus to depart from him because he's a wicked man. Coming face to face with Jesus results in humility and repentance. It always does. When you really see his mercy and his grace... It, it breaks us. It changes us. Luke chapter 19, uh, Luke, um, Luke records a story where Jesus is, he's walking along and uh, a man wants to see him. He's heard about this Jesus guy and, and he wants to see him and, and the crowds are, are great and he's a short man and he can't see Jesus so he runs ahead, climbs up a sycamore tree and and he, and he hangs out there until Jesus walks by. And, and Jesus stops 
And he comes over to Zacchaeus and he, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down because I am coming to sup with you tonight. I'm coming to have dinner at your house tonight. And he invites himself in to Zacchaeus' house. And we don't know exactly what happens or what's said in that conversation. Jesus says, um, or Zacchaeus in response to whatever is said there, uh, declares that today... I will give half of what I own to the poor. And if I've wronged anyone, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to your house. This man's heart was transformed. He came face to face with a savior whose grace and mercy to a sinner, to a despised sinner like him, transformed him. And it, and it led to generosity and joy and repentance. The last one that I want to, uh, last story or last encounter that I want to uh, share with you is, comes from Luke 7. Luke, in Luke 7, Jesus has another encounter. He's been invited to the house of a Pharisee. And the Pharisee, his name is Simon, um, or in his house, there's, a, there's this woman that's also come. And she's brought with her a jar of expensive perfume. And she's broken this jar and she's poured the perfume out on Jesus' feet. And she's weeping as she does this. And she's wiping Jesus' hair with her feet and she's kissing him. And Jesus... Jesus hears some, some I, I don't think he hears stuff. I think he knows it. But he hears Simon and, and the other Pharisees discussing what's going on. And, and these men are saying, you know, this man, Jesus, is supposed to be, we know he's supposed to be a prophet. But if he was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this, this woman is. She's a prostitute. And, and surely, you know, he would do something. He would cast her out of, her pre- out of his presence. So because he's not doing this, he, he can't be a prophet. And Jesus says to Simon, he, he doesn't even address any of those things that Simon's thinking. He says, he tells Simon a parable. He says, there's two people, Simon. Uh, one, both of them had a debt. One had a really big debt. One had a really small debt. They, the master forgave both people the debt. Who do you think loved his master more. And Simon says, the one who has forgiven the bigger debt. And Jesus says, this woman, um, ever since I came in here, has not stopped kissing my feet and wiping my hair and weeping over me. And you, since the time, the moment that I entered my door, you, you, you didn't give me any kiss. You didn't, you didn't welcome me in any, in any way like this. And he says, this woman's sins, though they were great, have been forgiven. And, he, and he, he, he releases her. And this woman knows it. He knows how much God's mercy, she's seen God's mercy in the face of Jesus Christ. She's experienced it and she's been changed by it. You cannot come away from, from a meeting with Jesus unchanged. 
And, and, and the title of this sermon this morning is The Way of Violence Versus the Way of Peace. Every one of us is marked by sin. Every one of us is a sinner. That means that our lives are, are dominated and controlled by sin, characterized by sin. And, and, and we need a Savior. And, and if we put our faith and trust in, in Jesus Christ, as I've said before, we are redeemed. We're bought back. The, the price has been paid for your sins. And you walk away scot-free. You don't have to answer for any of your sins. Your Savior has done all of that for you. But you walk away having, having seen Jesus face to face. And you can't walk away unchanged. There's two hills in the Bible, two mountains in the Bible. There's Sinai and there's Calvary. And, and if you haven't met the Savior at Calvary, if you haven't been changed by the Savior at Calvary, if you haven't walked in the road, in the path that Jesus walked as he bore your sins on, in his body on the tree as he on the tree as he carried his own cross to Calvary. If you haven't walked that way, you are still under Sinai. You're still stuck under the weight of that mountain. But if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, everything that was accomplished on Calvary is yours. You walk away free, but you walk away transformed. You're a new creature, a new creation. This power of sin is broken in your life. You can practice loving your neighbor. You are no longer controlled by violence, by murder. You are controlled by love. God's grace and mercy has, has so radically changed you that you're a different person. Brothers and sisters, I want you to go away encouraged, resting, rejoicing in what Jesus has done at Calvary. For those of you who don't know this Savior, this good Savior, I, I, I pray that the scales would be removed. God, you, you, God is calling you today to repent and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. If your life is controlled by characterized by violence, by all of the things that lead to murder, you don't know Jesus. You might profess faith in Jesus, but you don't really know him. And I would urge you to repent, turn to Jesus, give up all of your selfish ambition, and live for Christ.